this evening, consider some background and then a few observations about the gospel um, from Colossians 1 verses 1 to 5. So let's read from God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together considering his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We want to understand your word so that we might believe the things that are true concerning Christ, follow him in obedience, serve his church, spread his gospel, all to the glory of his name. And so we pray for your help tonight as we begin a study of this letter. We pray, God, that we would see clearly the things that you have revealed in your word and that we would hold fast to those things. We pray also, Father, that our ultimate hope would be in the good news that you hold fast to us uh, through this very same word that we have believed by your grace. We pray, Father, that you would help us now. Please keep me from error. Please, please give your saints discernment, God, that they would hold fast to the things that are true. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start this evening with a question. Why are we focusing on this short letter from the Apostle Paul? There are any number of books in the Bible that we could pick from. So why are we picking this letter? Why, why are we focusing on Colossians for Sunday evening? Well, there's two answers to that. One is personal. Uh, I love this book of the Bible. <laughs> and outside of the Gospels, I don't think there's any other book that I've spent more time thinking about than, than Paul's letter to the Colossians. Chapter 1 in Colossians is arguably my favorite passage in all of Scripture. And sometimes I read it and the Lord uses it just to keep me in the faith on an everyday basis. So one reason why we're picking it is just personal. I like this book. Uh, I love this letter, and I always love to teach from it. The other reason why we're picking Colossians is that it's strategic for the life of the church, especially in our day, to consider this book. In fact, I would argue that Colossians is one of the more important books for the present life of the church in the age in which we find ourselves. All scripture is given by God and breathed out by the Holy Spirit. So every book of the Bible is relevant. Notice I didn't say Colossians was more relevant than any other book. Just more, maybe more important, more strategic at this juncture of the church's life. But to understand why that is, we need to think about the background to, to the letter. We need to understand a little bit about the life of the Colossian church in order to see why this letter is so important for us today. Most likely, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter around the year A.D. 60, while he was imprisoned in Rome. He wrote this letter even though he had never been to this church, as far as we can tell. Um, he had never visited the city of Colossae. This church was not one of Paul's plants. The Colossian church was planted by a man named Epaphras, who was a disciple of Paul, who planted this church at some point in time. And based on chapter 4, it seems that Epaphras was also a native of this city of Colossae. So this is his hometown, in other words. 
And evidently, he heard the gospel. He was discipled by Paul. Paul sent him back. He planted a church. And that's how this church came into existence. But by the time Paul writes this letter, it seems that things in the Colossian church have taken a rather dangerous turn. There's a band of false teachers that have risen up from within the congregation, and these teachers are advocating a false gospel. We don't know precisely what this false gospel was. It's not like the false teaching in Galatians that can be identified with a lot of specificity. We don't know exactly what it is. There are no documents in existence from these false teachers. But we can be sure that it was heretical. It was a denial of the biblical gospel. And so Paul wrote this letter to confront what we would call the Colossian heresy. What exactly were these false teachers advocating? Again, we don't know all of the, all of the details But if you read through the letter, you can get a pretty clear idea of what was going on in this church. The false teachers were advocating what we might call a Jesus and fill-in-the-blank theology. Jesus and something else. That is, they were insisting that the Colossians add to the person and work of Christ. These additions appear to be quite varied. Again, if you read through the letter, it's everything from worshiping angels to following certain practices of Judaism, to embracing even some local, perhaps pagan folk religion kind of stuff. It was a mixture, a mashup of a bunch of different things being added to the biblical gospel. It was a Jesus and fill-in-the-blank theology. And that's why this situation was so dangerous. That's why Paul took the time to write a letter to a church he had never been to. This false teaching was subtle. It wasn't explicitly denying things about the Lord Jesus. The false teachers were not telling the Colossians to abandon Jesus. Instead, they were saying you needed to add to Jesus. They were questioning Christ's sufficiency. Again, they didn't deny the Lord. They just minimized him by saying you needed to add to him. So it was subtle, you see. I I trust that if... In any number of local churches in Louisville on this Sunday, if someone stood up from behind a pulpit and said, hey, I want to teach you today that Jesus was not God, that someone in that church would say, sit down. Right? I trust that that would happen in any church in in our city. This was more subtle. This was saying, yeah, that Jesus is God. The gospel's true. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. And you need to add these other things to him. You see the difference? One is outright and easy to spot. The other is subtle, and therefore it's insidious, and it's all the more dangerous. And so Paul wrote this letter in order to call the Colossians back to this one truth. Here's the theme of the letter from the very start of our our time. Jesus Christ is supreme, and therefore he is sufficient. That's the theme of the whole book. Jesus Christ is supreme, and therefore he is sufficient. Those two words, supremacy and sufficiency, summarize the whole message of Colossians. Supremacy and sufficiency. What do we mean by that? Jesus Christ is supreme. He is the Son of God and the sustainer of the universe. He's the reconciler of God and man. He is the revelation of God's mystery. He is the head of the church and the holder of all things together. He's the fullness of God and he's the foundation of a new creation. Jesus Christ is supreme. There's no one that compares to Christ. No one can rival Christ. And therefore, Jesus Christ is sufficient for the life of his people. 
Those who belong to Christ have everything they need in the Lord Jesus. They do not need rules and regulations that have the appearance of wisdom but no value in restraining the flesh. They do not need anyone to disqualify them or subject them to shadows of things that have now passed away. Instead, those who believe in Christ need quite simply to live each and every day in light of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is supreme and therefore he is sufficient for the life of his church. Supremacy and sufficiency. That's the whole message of the book in those two words. Now, back to our question from a moment ago. Why are we focusing on Colossians? I said this is one of the more important books in the present life of the church, and I hope that that background shows us why. We are separated from the Colossian church by thousands of years, and yet we're facing the same temptation in our day. Are we not? It's the temptation not to deny Christ, but to minimize him by adding to his work. It's, it's the temptation to question Christ's sufficiency, to think that his gospel is not enough, or to think that his word is not sufficient to answer the challenges of our day. And sadly, sadly, you hear this all across evangelical culture. You hear this every time someone says that, a challenges, that the challenges of a scientific world are too great to believe the Bible's claims about creation or human origins. You hear it every time someone says that advances in technology make it impossible to believe in an all-powerful God who intervenes in the life of the world. You hear it every time someone says that biblical views of gender and sexuality and family are outdated at best and hateful at worst. You hear it every time someone says some categories of sin are so deep we need something other than the gospel to address them. Those are not examples of things the world is saying. The world thinks we're fools. Those are not examples of things the world is saying. Friends, those are things you might hear in any number of churches. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me on this, so let's just be clear. I'm not trying to throw stones at other congregations. I'm not saying that we should adopt some sort of Elijah mentality where we you know, go up on the mountain and say, oh Lord, I'm the only one left. That's not true. Neither of those attitudes is helpful, and we should be vigilant against any of that kind of thinking. Rather, my point is just to raise to your awareness the fact that it's the same temptation. Thousands of years from Colossae to us, and the temptation is the same because there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And so we face the same challenge of this subtle temptation that we need something other than the gospel, other than the word of God, and that's why we need this letter. That's why studying Colossians is strategic for the church because this book calls us back time and time again to the lordship of Christ. It's counterintuitive, friends, but as the culture gets more godless, we need to actually ramp up the emphasis on the fact that Jesus is Lord, not lessen it. We need to preach more on Jesus' authority over all things, not less. That's why we need this book, because it so consistently calls us back to the lordship of Christ. Jesus is supreme. He is Lord. And therefore, Jesus Christ is sufficient. His word is all that we need for life and godliness. And indeed, when we live in submission to his word, we are testifying to the world that Jesus is Lord by obeying him and obeying his word. So tonight, we're going to begin our study of this letter. 
And we're going to note how Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency are present from the very outset of the book. These are not themes that come in later. They're present from the jump. In many ways, this book begins as any other New Testament letter begins. Paul starts all of his letters, with the exception of Galatians, by thanking God and praying for the people that he's writing to. Colossians is no different. This is pretty typical for the Apostle Paul. But even here at the outset, you can see Paul's plan for countering the false teachers. Even these opening verses show us that Christ is supreme and sufficient. So what I want to do tonight is note just three ways that Paul shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Three ways that Paul shows us the sufficiency of the gospel from these opening verses. The first is in verses 1 and 2 where we see a picture of the gospel's power. It's a picture of the gospel's power. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And in verse 2, he calls the recipients saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Again, that's pretty standard stuff. Your Bible probably has a heading that says greeting. And in your Bible reading plan, you probably breeze through those verses pretty fast, right? It's just standard stuff. And that's true. This is Paul's greeting. And yet... It's more than just a simple greeting, you might say. Think about the titles that Paul uses. He calls himself an apostle. That means he is an authorized messenger of the risen Christ who crushed Satan and death and holds the keys to hell in his hands and reigns on heaven's throne. He's an apostle. He's a messenger of the risen Christ. Paul speaks the true word of God because he speaks on Jesus' behalf. And as an apostle, he is commissioned in Christ's name, bearing Christ's word with Christ's authority for the church. So if these false teachers want to claim some special insight into the things of God, then they face a pretty tough opponent because Paul's no amateur. He's an apostle. He's an authorized messenger who speaks with the authority of Christ. What's more, the Christians in Colossae, Paul calls them saints. Saints. We tend to have a pretty skewed notion of that word saint as though it describes some higher plane of Christian existence that we're sadly not going to ever get to. But that's not what the Bible means by the word saint. In the New Testament, every Christian is a saint because every Christian belongs fully and completely to the family of God. Every believer is a saint because we are all members and citizens of God's kingdom. So think about how vital this would have been for the people in the Colossian church. They've got these false teachers telling them that they are missing out on the fullness of God. That they need something extra in order to really be in on what God is doing. But from the start, Paul is telling them, you're all saints. You're already in the family of God. You don't need to listen to the false teachers because what they're peddling is a cheap imitation of the true gospel that you've already believed. You're saints, you're members of God's household. And in that sense, even the greeting demonstrates Paul's heart for these Christians. He's already reminding them of how powerful the gospel truly is. You can summarize the gospel's power like this. The gospel makes apostles out of rebels and turns sinners into saints. What more could you need than that? That's what verses 1 and 2 are. They're a picture of the gospel's power. The second way that Paul highlights the sufficiency of, gospel, of the gospel comes in verses 3 and 5. And, and here we find a reminder of the gospel's fruit. Not just a picture of the gospel's power, but a reminder of the gospel's fruit. 
Verse 3 is the main point of this opening paragraph. Good Bible study method. When you're looking at a paragraph, what's the main point? Verse 3 is the main point. And the main point is thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God. That's the main point of this opening section. Paul begins by giving thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a unique way to refer to God in the New Testament. Give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a purposeful way to refer to God. Think about what it means for Jesus. If God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean for Jesus' identity? It means that he's the Son of the only true God. So the theme is never far from Paul's mind. Jesus Christ is supreme. And even in giving thanks, Paul is proclaiming Christ's sufficiency. As the thanksgiving continues, you'll notice that Paul describes the fruit that the gospel has produced in this church. This is the reason why Paul gives thanks. Look at verse 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since or because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Thanksgiving is the main point. The reason for thanksgiving is the faith and love that's present in this church. In other words, Paul is thanking God for the fruit of the gospel that has been produced in this local body. Faith in Christ Jesus is the saving response to the gospel, a saving response that's brought about by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's word. And from that heart of faith, God's people respond with love for one another. They'll know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. As we come to know God's love in Christ, we're empowered to love others just as we have been loved. So this is foundational New Testament teaching on what, it, what happens when a group of people believes the gospel. They have faith in Christ that flows out in love for one another. That's the fruit that God bears in his church. And you'll notice that Paul explicitly thanks God for these things. He, he doesn't thank the Colossians for making the right decisions that produced faith and love in the church. He thanks God for the fact that they believe Christ and love one another. Is that because Paul thinks the Colossians are insignificant? Is he ignoring their standing in the Lord? No. No, not at all. Far from it. Rather, Paul is simply pointing out that this kind of fruit, faith and love, is the work of God in, the, in a group of people called a church. It's God who graciously grants his people faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And it's God who enables people to love one another in response to the gospel, even people who have nothing else in common. And that's why Paul starts where he does. That's why Thanksgiving is the main point of the paragraph with the reason being faith and love because it's a reminder that this church is God's work brought about by God's grace through the preaching of God's gospel. He's thanking God. Now, you, you, may be, you may be thinking as you read this letter, as you listen to our study tonight, this is a strange way to start a letter that's aimed at stopping heresy. <laughs> when is he going to get to the practical stuff of saying things like, don't believe that anymore, or don't do that? This seems like a strange way to start a letter. When is he going to get to the practical things? But that's just it, friends. This is the practical stuff. This is the antidote to the poisonous subtleties 
of the false gospel. Paul's thanksgiving is reminding this church of a simple but powerful truth. God is working among you. What else would you need? God is already working among you. Your faith and your love may seem like thing, small things in the world's eyes, but it's there in those daily expressions of trusting God and loving your neighbor that the Colossians experience the very power of the triune God. So do you, do you see the connection for how Paul is working here? By thanking God for faith and love, he reminds this church, you've already got all you need because you have the gospel, and the gospel is bearing fruit in your midst. You don't need anything else. So before we move on, we should just pause here for a second and think what this means for the everyday Christian life, even my everyday Christian life, your everyday Christian life. I mean, the reality is most of my days seem rather mundane. I don't know if that's true for you, too. And so it can be tempting at times to think, like, what am I missing? Like, what am I missing in this thing called Christianity? Because yesterday just felt like a normal day, and tomorrow doesn't look too great either. So, so what am I missing? And this point here, this Thanksgiving, reminds us that right now, in our current situation, you can join with God in the grand work that he's doing in the whole universe. You don't have to go out and find some other thing to do. You don't need anything other than the gospel. Right now, you can join God in the very power that he's displaying in the life of his people in this world. You can join in the one true gospel, a gospel that is so powerful it produces faith in Christ and love for one another. You don't need to find something spectacular to do. You can do that right now. Where can you join in that work? Where can you join in what God is doing? Right here in this local church that you're a part of. You can hold to the faith and encourage other people to do the same. Why do we take for granted that persevering in the faith is a fruit of the Holy Spirit? You can help others stay in the faith, encourage them to persevere. You can love one another through prayer, discipleship, encouragement, and service. I got a text message this week from a member of our church who said, I hope you're devoting yourself to the things that are the most important for you to do this week, which is preach God's word. And that was a huge encouragement to me to just do the things that are most important. Prepare for Sunday. There's like 9,000 other things I don't even know the answer to yet. I'm not even sure what questions I'm supposed to be asking. I'm going to do the main thing. And this brother helped me remain focused on what God has given me to do. You can persevere in sound doctrine. You can strengthen the bonds of our fellowship. You can serve in the myriad of ways where we need brothers and sisters to step in and serve right now. You don't need to go somewhere else, in other words, to join God in what he's doing. You can just do the work right here. And when you work for faith and love in the life of a local church, you're giving yourself to the thing that matters most in the universe, which is the exaltation of Christ through the spread of his gospel in the life of his body. Sign me up for that. Let's do that every day until the Lord comes back or until we die. And so as we do these things together, this incredible reality becomes clear every single day, and the reality is that God is working among us in all these ways that seem mundane that are actually not mundane at all. And so I hope that helps change your perspective. I know that it reorients my perspective every time that I read 
this letter, instead of thinking that I need to do something spectacular to join in God's work, I am convicted that right now, today, in Fisherville, Kentucky, I have the opportunity to join God in this grand work of making much of Christ in the life of his church. That's good news. And you can join there too. The gospel bears fruit in faith and in love, and that means holding to the faith and loving other Christians are high callings indeed. That's the second way we see the gospel's sufficiency. Final way that Paul highlights the gospel's sufficiency is also in verse 5. Here we receive encouragement from the gospel's hope. Not just the gospel's power, not just the gospel's fruit, but encouragement from the gospel's hope. When verse 5 is added to verse 4, you get the three most well-known virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. Look again at verses 4 and 5 together. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's the Christian life in summary, faith, hope, and love. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love remain. The greatest of these is love. It's a summary of Christian virtue. But at the same time, Paul is doing more than summarizing virtue. He's making a powerful point about the foundation of the Christian life, a foundation that the Colossians have already experienced in the gospel. And it has to do with this idea of hope. So I want you to think with me for just a minute about hope as Paul describes it in verse 5. I think a lot of folks have some unnecessary baggage that comes with the word hope as a virtue. So let's just try to think biblically about what it means. What are the features of this hope in verse 5. First of all, this hope is a reality, not an experience. Typically, we think of hope as something we experience inside of us. I am hopeful that things will turn out well. But that's not how Paul views hope in verse 5. For Paul, this hope is a reality that is outside of us. It's not, it does, it's not an experience that occurs inside of me. It's a reality that exists outside of me, something that I embrace by faith. You can see this quite clearly by where he locates the hope. Where is it? Not, not inside of us, but in heaven, right? This hope that's laid up for you in heaven. So that's the first unique feature of biblical hope. It's not, it's not an experience that occurs inside of me. It's a reality that exists outside of me. As a result, the gospel's hope is certain and not contingent. This is a certain hope, not a contingent hope. Usually, we think of hope as something akin to wishful thinking. So, I hope that Arkansas wins the NCAA tournament this year. But that's wishful thinking because we're 0-3 in conference play and we lost to Vanderbilt. <laughs> it's the general rule of thumb. No one wins championships if they lose to Vanderbilt. We tend to think of it as wishful thinking. That's not how Paul views hope in verse 5. For Paul, the gospel's hope is certain. Notice that it's laid up in heaven. That phrase laid up is key. The idea is to set something aside in security for safekeeping so that it can be given at the right moment. Every Sunday, I wear my father's watch to church. It's the same watch that my dad wore 
every day when he was building his business. And my dad laid it aside for me. And when the time was right, my dad gave it to me. I received it because my father had taken care to protect it so that I would get it at the right time. That's something of the idea here in verse 5 when Paul says the hope is laid up for you. The father is keeping it ready for you. It's not contingent on your getting it. You're living up to the standard. It's certain. Our reception of this hope is not contingent on anything. It is certain in God's eyes. Final feature about that hope. Because the gospel's hope is a certain reality, not a contingent experience, it sustains us, not the other way around. The hope sustains us. Usually, we think of hope as something that flows out of faith. I believe in something, and therefore I'm hopeful about it. Right? Hope comes from faith. But once again, that's not how Paul thinks about hope in verse 5. For Paul, it's the other way around. It's not faith that sustains hope. It's hope that sustains faith. Notice how verse 5 is linked to verse 4. This is really important. Why do the Colossians trust in Christ and love one another? Because, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see it? It's not faith that produces hope. It's hope that sustains the faith. This hope is a certain reality. It exists outside of me, and therefore, it's what sustains me, not the other way around. So make the connection with the purpose of the letter. False teachers that we talked about, we're going to talk about them a lot. They're peddling a false gospel, but it's a message that the Colossians simply don't need. Already they have this heavenly hope that's kept for them by God. They've received God's provision for the Christian life. They have a hope that cannot be shaken. No one can take it from them. It's certain, and it will sustain them in faith and love. So here's the big question. We've already alluded to the answer a couple of times, but here's the big question. What is this certain, sustaining hope? What is it? Notice the rest of verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The certain, sustaining hope is nothing less than the good news of the gospel that we have already believed in Christ. It's the good news that Jesus Christ is the fully divine Son of God that he humbled himself and took on flesh for the salvation of his people, that he fulfilled the law and went to the cross not because he deserved to die, but in order to atone for the sins of his people, that having died he did not stay dead, but rose again on the third day and ascended again to the Father's right hand where he reigns from heaven's throne, making intercession for his people, and from whence he is coming very soon to judge the living and the dead. That good news is the certain sustaining hope that we've already received through faith in Christ. And that good news is enough. This is the hope laid up for believers in heaven, the hope that eternal life belongs to us because we belong to Jesus. There's nothing to add to the gospel, for the gospel is the very word of God, the once-for-all declaration that Christ is supreme and therefore he's sufficient for the life and the salvation of his people. We don't need anything other than Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want to build my life on. This is what I want to build our ministry on together. This one glorious, unchanging, never wavering gospel of Christ. The world is changing all around us. You may have noticed. 
I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm pretty sure that it's going to keep changing. The world is changing. The church world is changing dramatically. We need something that doesn't change. We need to remember that regardless of what is happening out there, God's provision to us in the gospel is enough. His word is enough. The Lord Jesus is enough. The good news of Christ crucified and resurrected for the salvation of sinners is enough. And therefore, we can spend our lives, come what may, gladly serving the Lord right where he has us, both here in the church and out in, out in the world. We don't need anything other than God's word that reveals to us the gospel of the supreme and sufficient Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news. And so my prayer is that God would make us faithful to do just that, to spend our lives making much of Christ, walking in faith, loving one another, and recognizing that we don't need something else spectacular. We have all that we need, and we can give ourselves to this work right here. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you so much that your word is clear, that when we read the Bible through the work of your Holy Spirit, the things concerning Jesus Christ and eternal life and godliness are plainly revealed to us so that we can be sustained in the faith and that we can be kept secure for the last day. Thank you, God, that your word is clear and that it speaks even now. That when we read the Bible, we read the very word of God and therefore we have all that we need for life and godliness. Lord, would you please renew in us a desire to stake our lives upon this one gospel. Lord, I pray that as we go into this next week, we would be mindful of the fact that we don't need to look for a bunch of extra spectacular things that we can do in order to be pleasing to you. We can simply hold to the faith, love one another, and trust that in those things you are working by your power, through your spirit, to the glory of Christ. Father, we pray for a simplicity of faith. Even, Father, a simplicity of, of ministry that we would give ourselves to the most important things. The one thing, even. Making Christ known through the ministry of his church. Lord, we pray that you would please bless this church, God. That you would bless each of us as members of this church. That we would be committed to loving one another, strengthening the bonds of fellowship here, maintaining the faith all to the glory of Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd keep us as we go throughout this week. Bring us back together again on the next Lord's Day when we can worship our, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hope you have a good week.